Thank you very much. You can be seated. You know, it's often at this moment after that that you kind of turn the microphone on. So <laughs> it's never a good look, is it? Ah, oh, dear. Well, thank you for coming this morning. And uh, I, I just look, we're going to do something different. It's not often we talk about science in, in a Christian church. But um, I want to explore that issue with you this morning. And I just thank you for the invitation. At BD, we love you guys. You know, it's just so good. There's such a strong church up here, and we're in partnership. You know, like the way Paul used to write in the, his letters, you know, we, we're working together for the name of Jesus. And yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, you need to pray for Pastor John and Danielle. You know, Darwin, I've done 25 flights to Darwin in the last two and a half years. Uh, building a wastewater plant up there, and this is the worst time to be there. They're crazy up there right now because it's muggy and it's hot and it won't rain, and they get a bit kind of interesting. But C3 Darwin, I went there a couple of times, as uh, you know, because we're up there trying to commission this plant up, and what a great church! Wow. The Helvestons just do a magnificent job up there. Isn't that good? We're not alone. We're not alone. It's, it's the body of Christ. Let's, uh, let's kick up the first slide because I'm, I'm counting down here. That's truly scary. All right. I love this picture because we live in a world where science is everywhere and it occupies our lives more and more and more. You know, you look at the smartphone, you look at cars, you, you look at energy, everything uh, almost is built around science. And that's not to downplay the importance of culture and art and creative uh, activities, uh, civil government, the rule of law, all those things are equally critical to where we are today. But we're talking about science, and I love this. Think of this. What are the species of the planet has for 17 years lived in this environment in outer space in the International Space Station. It goes round the world 15 times a day. Wow, imagine the speed of that. Whew, leaves the BRZ behind somewhat. But, um, you know, think of it. Minus 273 degrees outside. Absolute vacuum. No gravity, no oxygen, and yet... Through all our knowledge, we're able to inhabit that zone. We're special. And part of that is science. And as Christians, we live in this modern world. So part of this talk is about making us feel comfortable living in a scientific world and not threatened by it. So let me open it up. Today, what I want to do is address three kind of things. I want to explore them. I'm not going to ram it down your throat. You're welcome to turn it around, look at it, throw it out if you want. But it's just a chance to think and, and consider. First, how does science work? And is it intrinsically or naturally anti-God? So that's the first thing. Secondly, as a born-again Christian who loves Jesus, can science teach me anything about God's nature? That's an interesting one. Can I learn from science? Can it increase my awe and wonder at the creator I love? And third, is there any 
kind of issue at which point belief in the Bible collides head on with science. And if so, what is that? And how do we kind of, kind of live with that? So they're, they're the three things. And away we go. Next slide, please. How does science work? I'm going to illustrate this with a, a picture of a, a kind of modern issue. Bacterial infections are getting resistant to antibiotics. Who's heard about that? Yeah, big problem in the world. And it's actually been around for over 60 years. So I'm going to kind of indicate how you address that issue through a scientific process. And science kicks off based on scientific method. There's a methodology around science, and fundamentally you can think of it as a tool. It's like a hammer. It's like a thermomix. It's just a bit more sophisticated. But it's a tool to find truth about our physical universe. That's all it is. And it starts with observation. It starts with the mind of a child. Scientists need to stay child-minded. Reminds you of Jesus, doesn't it? You need to chain child-minded, you know, in faith. Well, science kind of demands that too. That curiosity. Why, when I pour water out of here onto your expensive carpet, does it wet the carpet and not the roof? What? You know? Questions like that, you know? Uh, why, why can I drink alcohol and burn it as well? That's freaky, you know? So, you know, like, like, no wonder you get fat drinking alcohol. You can burn it, figure it out. Anyway, I don't, I'm, I'm digressing. So observation, science is all about observation. So in the 50s, sorry, in the 40s, antibiotics burst on the scene as a miracle drug. For the first time ever, you could cure with this medication, particularly penicillin early on, bacterial infections and save lives. And during the Second World War, thousands of lives were saved by antibiotics. And then doctors and scientists began to notice something disturbing. You needed bigger doses of penicillin to cure the, the, the infection. And they began to observe that some bacteria became resistant to antibiotics altogether. So much that now... Most antibiotics are ineffective against some bacterial infections, and that's scary. So, science then says, what the heck's happening? What's our best guess answer at, at kind of why this is happening? So, that's the next question, and, and they use big words like hypothesis, uh, climate change, you hear about models, and what these are is frameworks to try and put an initial guess in. We think this is happening. So it's kind of a start position. And with, with bacterial resistance, people thought, and there were many, there were many kind of hypotheses, but one group said maybe it's because these resistant bacteria have extra genes that code for to manner. The bodyguard, you know, the rugby league dude. So, so that when you're a resistant bacteria and you suddenly discover penicillin in your environment, you can generate 
a bodyguard molecule that goes out and inactivates the antibiotic and leaves the bacteria unscathed. So that was kind of one hypothesis. And then what science does is it's open and transparent. Ideally, but it's human, so it's not always. There are egos and hubris and research grants to win and get your competitor down. And it, no, that's not right. So what, what you do is then you put that idea out and say, what about this? You go to an international conference and you say, we think the cause is this. And what you get into is testing that hypothesis. Is it real? Does it, aren't, does it explain what you're seeing? Now, in the 50s was when we first started seeing antibiotic resistance. Think of it. In 1955, Watson and Crick discovered the structure of DNA, the double helix molecule. 1955. So this problem's happening when we barely understand genes. So it took science about 15 years of experimentation, having to develop new tools like genetic engineering, uh, ligases, electrophoresis to try and picture what's happening. And, and testing this theory. And so people grabbed resistant bacteria and pulled them apart, and guess what they found? It did have an extra chromosome, an extra bit of ge genetic information. It was circular, and they called it a plasmid. What they found is if you could push the plasmid out of that cell, it became sensitive again because it had lost its bodyguard protection. Now, science isn't pleasant to work in because actually 90% of it ends up in the black garbage bin. Bam, didn't work, bam, didn't work, bam, failed, bam, didn't get the research grant. So that's part of the frustration of science. Eventually, when your best guess answer survives the testing and seems to make sense, it becomes what's called a theory. And there are a lot of scientific theories, theory of evolution, theory of relativity, theory of the Big Bang. That's not the TV series thing. It, it's a scientific theory, you know, uh, and, and so on. And what a theory is, it's not infallible. All it is, is this, at this point in time, with this degree of understanding, this is our best estimate of how that phenomena works. Here's what we understand about bacterial resistance to antibiotics. So it's, it's a point in time, it's still able to be changed, and it may, parts of it may be wrong, but it's our best guess. The beauty of theories is you can use them to find answers. So for example, who's heard of Augmentin? Yeah. Augmentin is a result of that research. So what they decided to do was if the antibiotic was resisted by the bodyguard, it just needed a shepherd molecule. So what they hunted down was a molecule that would take out the bodyguard and leave the antibiotic able to get in and kill the bacteria. And Augmentin is an example of that sort of medication and you need to take it for the whole term for it to work, okay, that's really important. And so that was one of the answers that came out. Now, when 
all the available evidence supports the theory, it may become law. Who's seen The Martian, that movie with Matt Damon stranded on Mars? You guys need to get out more. <laughs> Seriously. Get it home. It's a great scientific video. It's actually really cool, except for the, you know, whether you could grow potatoes on Mars, I'm not sure about, but it's a good choice, you know. No chip fry it, that's all. But it, essentially the movie's great. Matt Damon gets stuck on Mars. The rest of his mates leap in the rocket and head back to um, Earth and leave him behind, thinking he's dead. About halfway, they suddenly realise, oh my goodness, Matt's stranded on Mars. How do we get him out? Can't leave a top flight actor stuck on Mars, can you? And like, he's running out of potatoes, so how do we get there real quick before all we find is a shriveled kind of mummy, you know, of Matt Damon, which just wouldn't look good. So you, if you've seen the movie, there, there was an Afro-American astrophysicist shivering in the computer thing trying to calculate how to get the rocket back to Matt to get him back to Earth. And he used two laws. He used gravitation, the law of gravitational force. If you slingshot the rocket around the Earth, gravity gives it a boost and gets it back faster. And, and then what you've got to worry about is, yeah, but in the couple of months to get the rocket back, the planets have shifted. So how do I know where to send the rocket? And that way you use Kepler's laws of planetary motion, where the motion of the planets around the sun are described by relatively simple equations. Extraordinary. And so he solved that using a supercomputer. And they, he was so good at targeting, they got mapped by a glove. How cool is that? Science in action. Outstanding. All right. So that's science and how it works. The sort of take-home message is it's only a tool. It's only a tool. It's not an ideology. It's not a religion. Let's have a look at four tests that science has to meet to be truly useful. Like you can't use a hammer to, to cut wood although I've tried that, but it doesn't work really well. In the same way, science does, isn't always the right tool. So the next slide just shows the four tests. What we're studying needs to be observable. We need to be able to kind of see it. That doesn't just mean eyes. It can be x-rays, microwaves, radio waves, whatever. But it's got to be observable. We must be able to measure what we're looking at. Ideally... If we perform an experiment in our lab, we need to be able to give that recipe to another lab and they can repeat it. Because if they can't repeat it, maybe I've got it wrong. And finally, we need to do it under controlled circumstances so what we're looking at is not confounded by lots of other things happening. And if science can meet those tests on a phenomena, it's good to go. But if you push it too far, it begins to fall down and make a mess. So that, they're very important. So the take-home message here is the supernatural can't be studied by science. There's a physical world that science explores well, but a supernatural world for which science is a useless tool. 
you can't observe it, you can't measure it, it's not repeatable, and you can't study it under controlled conditions. So science can't go there. And in a sense, it says nothing about God. It can't. It's out of its scope. So that's an important thing to understand. But it's not anti-God. It's just got nothing to say. Let's have a look at the second issue. Can science help me as a Bible believer to understand God better? Let's look at the next slide. The, the photo coming up is one Julia and I took at a, the photo coming up. Uh, we, we took this photo. We went to, we're unusual, we went to the Queensland Museum and uh, they were doing an exhibition on the Hadron Collider. That's a 27-kilometre circle buried under, under Switzerland and France. And that's where they found the Higgs boson particle. And when we went to that exhibition, it was delightful. They had a picture, a blackboard. Um, no, we haven't got there. Maybe I missed that one. We'll roll on. Next, next one. Yes, I've skipped my fault. They, they had all these blackboards, you know, sort of three metres tall, covered in equations, and my heart just fell in love. They had Schrodinger's equation, Einstein's equation. I'm, I'm slavering on the blackboard saying, I love you, I love you, and others were doing it. We were weird, you know. <laughs> what does science show? The more you study the physical universe, the more you discover it is ordered so much that the language of mathematics describes it. Equals mc squared, Kepler's equation, gravity equation. It's an ordered universe that we can describe with mathematics. In fact, I go so far to say mathematics is God's language. When God created, maybe he just spoke equations. But hey, don't take that as it's a flight, you know. So that's what science sees. And actually, when you look at chemistry, you see order. All the elements can be put in the periodic table, the discovery of which was foundational to chemistry. You look at biology, taxonomies, everything in order. You look at uh, mass. You know, if I grab the table of something with mass, it's made up of particles. And the more you look, the more small particles there are. When I went to school, there were atoms and electrons. Now there are muons and quarks and strangers and Higgs boson particles. You know, but there's a structure about it. And that's how they knew to go hunting the Higgs boson particle. They said there's one missing and they found it. Structure, order in the universe. That's what science shows. What does the Bible say about God? In Job, it says, dominion and all belong to God. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. Our God is a God of order. There are ten commandments. Order. I love this one. In Genesis 2, when uh, Adam's created and God's created the animals, one of the first things God does is stroll along to Adam and say, Adam, life's not free, my man. You got a job. See those animals? There's a few of them. You got to name them. Every one. Wow. What's naming? It's ordering. Naming is ordering. 
You look at biology, it's taxonomy. It's naming stuff so that you can order it, put it in families, put it in, in groups, species, genus. It's ordering. Our God created an ordered universe. And as I look at science, I think I'm learning more about them. And in fact, if you look at the old Greek and Roman sort of concepts of gods, the universe was random. They threw lightning bolts down unpredictably. You know, it was chaotic and capricious. If the universe was like that, science would be useless. Now, I love it. You know, like I, one of the great things about being a science person working particularly in universities is if you get it wrong, it doesn't matter. Astronomers are the most honest, lovely people I know. They said there are 400 billion galaxies. Okay, that's a few. That's 10 to the 9. And then about last year, they came out and said, oh, man, we put Hubble up there. We got it wrong by a factor of 20. There's 2 trillion. And I'm thinking, I hate you guys. You're like weather forecasters. You're out by a factor of 20 and there's no consequence. I'd sack you all. How many carpenters? I couldn't get away with that with a client. What? You build it 20 times too small? You're fired. But astronomy, hey, you know, best guess, best guess. Two trillion galaxies. How extravagant is our God? That's extravagant. Each one, the Milky Way, one galaxy, 400 billion stars. <sighs> Does my head in. Okay, let's finish uh, with the last one. Is there anywhere that science and a belief in Christ can collide? And the answer is yes. Let's head to the next slide. Next one. Yeah, that's what we build. Bacterial soups. Okay. This slide kind of posits three areas of collision between faith in Christ and science, but I'm just going to address one. Christianity claims God is the creator. It's clear in the New Testament. Paul writes, nothing was made except through Christ, visible and invisible. That's a big-ass claim, isn't it? Christ is the creator. He claims that he made us. And from that claim, therefore, humans are accountable to God. So if there's judgment at the end of time, God's got fair right to judge because we belong to him, whether we accept it or not. So that's the Christian stand. It's not that God wants to judge us. It's just God created us for relationship. We see that with Adam. He wanted to be there with Adam and watch him name animals. He wanted to walk with them in the garden. It was relational. What does science say? Science says, and remembering science can't include a supernatural influence, just can't do it. So we've got to answer the question, where did life come from and why is it so diverse without God? So science says humans evolved over a huge period of time and the age of the earth under science, about 4.5 billion years, through a process of evolution through natural selection. There was no God involvement at all. So intrinsically what science says is we're not accountable to God. You can read that from evolution. You can draw that conclusion. And there's a conflict there between the two. 
Let's have a look at natural selection. Next slide. In 1859, Charles Darwin truly contributed a magnificent concept into biology. How many people have got brown eyes here? Give me a wave. Oh, gee, okay, you're, you're kind of there, but minor. Blue eyes. Wow, yeah, a few more blue eyes here. What about green and hazel? Wow, that's amazing. Have we got violet or purple eyes here? No, it's rare, but it's said to be magnificent. What about red eyes? Anyone got, I'm not talking about you playing computer games to four. No, but they're the range of human eye colours. And what the diversity of eye colour reflects is a genetic diversity within this population here. And what Darwin said is natural selection, there are selective forces that advantage one group over another. That's the whole concept of selection. And that shifts the population genetically as less adapted individuals wash out, fail, get extincted. And we hear a lot about extinction today. And, and the better adapted are kind of supported. And the example up here is a wood mouth, uh, sorry, a wood moth in England. This is a very famous example. And it's food for birds. So the birds are the selective agency. As they eat moths, those moths can't breed. They can't pass their genes on. Pre-industrial revolution, trees were clean. The moth population was predominantly pale coloured. Why? Because if you're a fast-moving bird, the dark one stands out. Then suddenly, through no fault of the moths, the world changed. Industrial revolution hit. We burnt coal, we burnt wood, and guess what? The trees went sooty. And over about 100 years, that population shifted to being mainly dark animals. For obvious reasons. If you're a fast-moving bird, the dark one ain't so visible anymore. It's the light colour. So that's the concept. Next slide. What evolution is, is a vast extrapolation of natural selection. And as an engineer, we hate extrapolation. We just end up in trouble because we're, we're stepping out where we're not sure. So what evolution does is it says, well, if you run natural selection over millions of years, then you give natural selection plenty of time to take a primeval slime or form of life right through to the diversity that we see today. Birds, fish, humans, everything. Through that process. So that's the basis of evolution. And it's elegant. It has a lot of actual support. It can explain a lot of what we see. The issue with it is it conflicts with the Bible and God's claim, he did it. The other problem with evolution, it still can't explain how life started. And if you don't have life starting, you've got nothing to work with. And in fact, a, a, a woman scientist, an astrobiologist, how cool is that? Astrobiologist, I don't even know what that person does. But Dr. Maureen Palmer of the NASA Space Centre she was quoted in ABC online the other day saying, 
you know, it's all good except we don't really know how life started. So that's a fundamental flaw with evolution and there are a few others. So, moving on. Let's test these two concepts against the tests of science. Natural selection, it gets a big tick for all the tests. We can observe it, measure it, repeat it, and control it. It's definite. In the sort of technology Julia and I put into uh, manufacturing plants, we have big bacterial reactors. We deliberately use natural selection to keep out types we don't want and to encourage bacteria we do want. It works. Darwin was right. However, if you extrapolate to evolution, it's at the fringes of science. It's beginning to walk off the edge, and it's not, it's a theory. It's far from proven. There are issues with it. It's still out there to change. So, let's finish. Is there an alternate? I like the one of devolution. Uh, I, I'll just quickly cover this. On the y-axis, you've got life expectancy of humans from zero to a hundred. And this, I've, I've thrown this together from the Bible. Imagine a perfect God creates a perfect human. Perfect genes. How long do you think they'd live? We're making 80 years now. I can tell you my family genes are a mess. If I get them genetically tested, there's all sorts of stuff there. Imagine a perfect set of genes. Maybe I used to read Genesis, you know, where it says these guys lived hundreds of years and go, yeah, right, you know, they couldn't count. But maybe if you had perfect genes... Maybe they could have lived that long. But then when we separated from God, the second law of thermodynamics crept in. And if you listen to the British supergroup Muse, they sing about it in their latest album. Don't you love that? Rock, go to a rock concert and get science. Wow. Man, that's a win. And basically what that says is everything decays. Do you think that's right? Buy a new house, 10 years later, it's a wreck. Buy a new car, 10 years later, it's a wreck. Have a body, get to 20, from 20 onwards, it's not good. <laughs> you know, our whole existence says things don't improve with time, things degrade with time. Now, there's some kind of technicality in the law that can, can, you can use to support evolution, but what say that's true and falling away from God, our genes just get worse and worse and worse. And our life expectancy by the 1950s, it was wrecked. It was 40 worldwide, 40 years in the 1950s. So why do we live so much better and longer? It's because God has given us the gift, no other species on the planet has it, to get knowledge, complex knowledge, and pass it to the next generation through language. No other species on the planet is able to do that. And that, as it's accumulated, as we mastered fire, as we hafted tools, as we domesticated cattle, as we found antibiotics, pow. And ultimately, we're heading for the roof because we've got smartphones. 
So, look, that's just a bit of fun, but it's a theory. It's an alternate. So let's finish. Science is a marvellous invention. It's a fabulous tool. It says nothing about the supernatural. It can't. As a Christian, I can work in a scientific field as I have with Julia for our whole careers and hold a faith. When we start bacterial reactors, once all the science and engineering's done, I go there and I pray for the bacteria and I cast out the ones I don't want and I talk to Jesus and I command the good ones to grow. Now, I do that discreetly. You know, the client doesn't need to watch. But, you know, I believe I can mix science and I can mix faith and achieve great outcomes, yeah? But we need to understand there are conflicts. So with something like evolution, let's look at it. To me, it's a question of faith. Richard Dawkins can't bring his environmental biology team and create life. They have no idea how life began. So you believe evolution is kind of the best the best answer without a God involvement. But you believe evolution. They use that term, believe evolution. It's by faith because it doesn't, can't demonstrate. Same with Christianity. I would love God. Lord, just create Adam right now in front of all these people and bam, who wouldn't believe? Wow, wouldn't that be awesome? But he won't do it. I believe it by faith. So either way, it's an issue of faith. Thank you.